Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Federal Infrastructure Minister Catherine McKenna has decided not to seek re-election. Now, McKenna had faced verbal abuse both inside and outside of Parliament during her time in office. Did that have anything to do with her decision? Recent events uh, have brought some of Canada's worst historical crimes into international focus, but a majority of Canadians do not support the calls to cancel Canada Day. Dave Schultz, Executive VP at Leger, joins us to talk about the results. And malnourished children at residential schools have been used as test subjects for nutrition scientists who performed unethical research. We'll give you the grisly details about that as well. It's all coming up, the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The uh, speculation about a federal election is running rampant, uh, not just in Ottawa, but right across the country. It's, it's coming. We know that. We just aren't sure exactly when it's going to be. Uh, what is surprising, though, is the number of MPs uh, of all political parties that are bowing out and saying they're not going to run for re-election. A uh, bit of a surprise this past weekend, too, when uh, uh, Infrastructure Minister Catherine McKenna, who Hamilton people would know quite well because she was front and center with the the debate about LRT funding. Anyway, announced that she's not seeking re-election. She actually represents a riding up in Ottawa. Uh, Global's David Aiken has some details. Catherine McKenna says that, above all else, her decision to leave politics was motivated by a desire to spend time with her three school-age daughters. I don't have many years left with them at home, and I want to spend more time with them. McKenna also said she wants to focus on fighting climate change, but she resisted suggestions that she was unable to do that as infrastructure minister in Justin Trudeau's government. 100% no. Her cabinet colleague, Stephen Guilbeault, himself a former climate campaigner, said fighting climate change can be done and must be done everywhere. You can be a climate activist around a cabinet table, you can be a climate activist in the private sector, you can be a climate activist in, in the not-for-profit sector. I think we need a diversity of people in, in all of these fields. Clearly, uh, Catherine McKenna, of course, as, as former environment uh, minister in the, in the government, previous government, uh, has that right in her wheelhouse, and that's something that she's always been passionate about. We get that. Uh, but in doing that, she made a lot of enemies. And a lot of the questions, uh, as they got to the Q&A after she made her announcement yesterday, had to do with the pressure that she got. I mean, you may remember her office was vandalized. There were threats made against her. She actually had to have a security detail. Uh, and it, it, the conversation between the media and, and Minister McKenna seemed to morph into women's role in politics and, and the level playing field that doesn't seem to exist for women. I want to bring Laura Babcock into the conversation, the president of Power Group. Uh, Laura, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks, Bill. Uh, this, this is a subtext, and I know Catherine McKenna didn't want to go down that road, but a couple of different folks in the media asked her about this. But when you look at the track record there, uh, the insinuation we got from some of the reporters there was that, well, no kidding, she's like, look at the way she's been abused. Who, who wants to take that anymore? Does this send a, a message to women who may be entertaining the idea of going into political life? Well, I, it's not just those questions. Uh, and they were, I mean, it was a big news story that she had had those kind of attacks and slurs and people at her office. And so, you know, I, I don't fault the media for asking her the follow-up if it had anything to do with her decision-making process. Uh, but when you look at the actual stories that were crafted about her leaving, you had to search through to find anything about her actual legacy and accomplishments because most of them were gummed up with speculation around Mark Carney jumping into her seat. So, I mean, the sexism that women face in politics was evident in the way that her news was announced. I mean, it had, and Carney hadn't said anything different. Nothing had changed in terms of Carney and entering into federal politics, but the media had to tag his name in with her story. So, I mean, I found that even more frustrating, Bill, than questions about the harassment that she went through and whether that factored into her decision-making. 
Well, and more than one person to cover the story actually took that slant on it, that uh, she's stepping aside to make room for him. Uh, she denies that, but you always deny something like that. But, I mean, you, you wonder if that's, if that's part of the things that were going on behind closed doors here. But there's no evidence in all. I, I read all of the media that I could on it, and there didn't seem to be any evidence at all that that was um, based in some sort of you know well-placed rumor or you know source close to Trudeau or anything like that. It was just you know people wanting to put in the, the possibility of Carney riding in, <laughs> which has always been a, a kind of a fascination, especially for Ottawa media, is to they ever get Mark Carney to run federally. And he has flirted with it, of course, in the past, and, and now says he just wants to support the party. But the point is, Catherine McKenna achieved a lot as a cabinet minister. She was, you know, went through putting climate policy in that was challenged by the premiers and ultimately victorious in Supreme Court that she could put it through, that there could be, you know, a price on carbon across the country. That's a huge accomplishment. In infrastructure, she obviously was very involved in their infrastructure rebuild plan, but also brought the LRT funding from the federal government to Hamilton. So I, I think what's unfortunate in the coverage of McKenna leaving is either the speculation about a, a male coming in to a high post when there's been no indication that anything has changed on that front and not covering the actual things that she has achieved and making it more about a story about the harassment that she went through. She was very clear why she left. Uh, she went through what I think most people went through during the pandemic, which was a reassessment of their personal values. When you are faced with possible death and the death of people around you, you really take an examination of your life. And she came to the firm conclusion that her priorities were her family and climate change and that she can be active in climate change outside of government. Uh, and I mean, that is what people should be taking from it. And she also made a point, Bill, to your question about does it put a kind of a chilling effect on women running for politics? She actually said, run like a girl and I'll be there with you. Don't let any of this stop you. So, uh, you know, it's unfortunate to see different narratives being built out of the announcement that weren't her narratives. I mean, that happens, obviously. That's how the media works sometimes. But I think it's important to focus on the achievements of McKenna herself and her own reasons and her own words on why she's leaving the post. But every time you have a strong woman, and Catherine, I, can I put it in that category, uh, you're always going to get detractors who simply say, too pushy, too, and you've heard all the descriptors of before, Laura, we've had this discussion. Same thing happened years ago when Sheila Copps left politics. And, and I understand not a lot of people love Sheila. A lot of people do. A lot of people don't. Uh, I... I've known Sheila, well, since high school, so we go back a long way. Didn't agree with everything she did or said, but, you know, there's, she accomplished an awful lot in political life. Uh, yet she gets slammed by people who simply say, well, you know, look at what she did. She's just pushy. She's just one of these people that just, you know, get, wants her own way. She goes off in a snit. Well, if it's a, a man that's doing that, of course, they say, well, he's aggressive, and, and boy, we need that sort of person in public office. There's a different set of criteria for women in politics, and I don't know if that's changed any time in the last little while. Well, it, it, it hasn't, uh, and the reason why I laughed was because I've been acute, I've been called all those things, and I'm not in politics. I'm just a, a strong woman who runs a company, right? So, uh, unfortunately, we get we get labeled with the B word and other things because we assert ourselves, because we lean in around the table, because we know that our opinions are informed and that our ideas are researched and that we have good instincts and therefore we should speak our mind. I've been watching a Downton Abbey recently, Bill. I don't know if you ever caught that series on oh, yeah. BBC. Um, but just watching the evolution of women's rights 
through that time a century ago. You know, we have come a long way, but not nearly far enough. And women who do assert themselves, who do show that they have strength in their convictions, and who do follow a path fearlessly, whether it's to the Supreme Court to fight for climate uh, change, uh, to fight for action on climate change, as McKenna did, or or some of the other uh, women's examples we can cite, are often maligned for it in a way that simply wouldn't be done with men. And I think as a society, we continue to ascribe strength to male uh, qualities, and we prefer to have women um, be either bookended by a male, like we saw in the in the coverage of McKenna leaving, uh, or you know watered down a little bit because heaven forbid that there are too many powerful women sitting around the table. And yet the research shows us that when there are women around board tables in corporate offices, the companies do better. I mean, so so there's no rationale behind it other than uh, sexism that continues to linger and stain our society. And and that's bad enough in, in the private sector and we see that happen way too often and, and you know, you're right the statistics bear that out that it's still rampant uh in the public sector though in elected office uh, is it worse i mean we we've, i can cite examples you know from now until noon i guess of, of women that that face that sort of thing i mean in you know globally i mean margaret thatcher i mean go down the list uh, hillary clinton uh again not to agree or disagree with any of the policies but just because of who she was and because of her gender and, and I, I saw it happening with Catherine McKenna too. Oh yeah, well, public office is always a higher level of scrutiny. You and I have spent much time criticizing government leaders who were male publicly because they are public office. They're in public office and they represent us, and it's our duty to keep them to account and to hold them to account. So I think male and female both are subjected to much more scrutiny when they're in public office, but disproportionately females get trolls and get threats. And get these, uh, I mean, and, and we should say, of course, Ford had a threat at, to his uh, home recently, and, and yep. there's, no one should ever be anywhere near the property of a politician. I said the same when there was people on the on the front porch of Mayor Fred's house a few years ago. Um, there, men also in politics get it, but do they get the public trolling and the, and the sexist attacks and the threats and the level um, that women get. I don't think so. I mean, even on social media, you can see it. And it's not just liberal politicians like Sheila Cobbs or McKenna. Michelle Rumpel, also a high-profile woman, gets that. I mean, there is. it is uh, oftentimes, I find it myself just as someone who common, makes commentary, I get it as well on my social media and, and regularly have to block trolls or, or mute them or expose them or, or contact the police about them. Um, because there, there is, and they're usually anonymous, of course, but there's a real fear, I guess, that some men continue to have uh, about women having authority and women having decision-making power over their lives. And as a country, as a world, we have to move past that. It's irrational, as most fear is, and it's, it's deleterious and destructive. I will say this, though. Um, I know my daughter and uh, girls her age don't seem to really fear that, don't seem to think that they are lesser or should be quiet or keep their mouths shut. Uh, my daughter regularly says, oh, I should be prime minister someday. I mean, that, I hope that we've at least created a generation of girls and boys who aren't going to put those limitations on women getting into public office in the future. But we have to deal with right now. And right now we have to stand up against it and we have to call it out. And it's a, for both men and women to do it. People of good character to say, you know what? Don't say that. She doesn't deserve it. That's unfair. That's sexist. That's cruel. That's dangerous. I'm going to report you to, to Twitter or Facebook or whatever else. 
for that kind of an attack. So we, we have to do what we can so that we continue to get good women leaders and in the private sector and good women politicians in the public sector to serve uh, without fear of, of this kind of backlash. You raise an interesting point about the the, the upcoming generation and, and their attitudes toward this. And, and I share your optimism, by the way. I'm, as you know, surrounded by strong women in this household. Mm-hmm. Uh, married one credible woman. Uh, our two daughters are just incredible, magnificent people that are doing wonderful things in their lives. And they're, ta- they're taking that attitude like, you know, nobody's going to push me around. Nobody's going to sit me in a corner. Uh, and, and that's the sort of attitude that you want to see. In other words, they're not going to be uh, impacted by this, and they're certainly not going to be intimidated by this sort of action. And, and not to suggest that, that you know, the, the women that are currently there are that way. It's just that I, I don't know that that fight's going to be as strong as it is now. I mean, it's, it's latent right now in politics, but it certainly still exists. Uh, but with, with you know, the next generation coming in, I'd like to think, both male and female, that they'll understand the, 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 the idiocy of, of, of that sort of an attitude and be able to move on from there. Well, I think that sexism is taught, just like hate is taught. And look at your case that you just brought up. Your wife is a phenomenal role model of female power, and your daughters are also exquisite. But they also have a father who um, supports them and in no way has any sort of sexist bone in your body, right? So when you have an environment in the home where the parents are supportive and are, you know, see their children as children, not as a gender with particular limitations and don't carry forward any of those archaic limits or stereotypes, I think that's a huge part of it. And for the women who have already stepped into politics, I I did a documentary on the youngest female cabinet minister a couple of years ago, a millennial minister, um, and, you know, was blown away by just her brilliance and, and not because she was a woman, but just her accomplishments at her age. And, you know, so for there was no fear there, you know. So I think that it's even in a you know, younger generation of politicians who are already in office, who are powerful. We, we can see Narendra Nan is a great example on Hamilton Council. So my hope, Bill, is that these women, even these younger women who are in politics, younger than I am, are setting an example for younger girls and saying, I'm doing it, you can do it. And like Catherine McKenna said, run like a girl. Don't try to morph into a male uh, format or a male stereotype as a politician. Run as yourself on what you believe in. And I think one other thing that Catherine McKenna said that was so powerful was she said, don't go into politics to be something. Go into politics to do something or to be someone. In other words, it's not ego-driven for her. And I think that um, hopefully we'll see that in more public uh, people who run for office. Do it to accomplish something. Do it for the sake of your community. Don't do it for your own aggrandizement. And I'm, I'm hoping we'll see more of that in Hamilton in the future as well. Well, one of the things you won't like to see in, a, in an elected official is, uh, first of all, somebody who's principled uh, and somebody who stands by those principles and fights for them. And uh, she is passionate about climate change and, and, and those issues and the impact that it's having on not just her family, but on the country as well. And you, to your point, uh, that is part of her legacy. I, mean, I, I know a lot of people disagree with the carbon tax, but that's how she felt about it. That's her passion. And, and that's a box she can check and say, we got it done. Uh, as to what subsequent governments are going to you know, argue about it anymore, I don't know. Probably will. Uh, that's just the way of partisan politics, I suppose. But that's what you're looking for in an individual. And, and I, that's, I guess, you know, the, the biggest asset a woman in politics can have is to have that principled attitude. Uh, but it's also one of the biggest liabilities because that is the vulnerability that people will try to pry it or, and, and, and ch- basically attack them on. And you see that on social media daily. 
Well, yeah, I mean, and it's and it's gross. Uh, I will say that even with McKenna on the climate change policy on the on the carbon pricing, there was a cover of McLean's quite famously now of the male premiers that were standing up, you know, um, and and of course she was ultimately victorious in the end. And I don't think that climate climate change and protecting us from climate change should be a male or female issue. Uh, it should be all hands on deck. The heat wave that is crushing the West Coast and literally baking it is moving east. And if we get weather like that in Ontario, do we have air conditioning yet for our long-term care homes? I mean, the nope. idea of climate change is something we all have to work on. We all have to care about. It should be a male or a female thing and neither should running with principles and and being vulnerable to being a principled individual we should expect that from our public officials and we should demand that from our public officials rather than myopic self-serving nonsense that keeps people in professional politics when they're not they're no longer committed to a cause or to a set of values so i I hope it's not a male or female distinction that you can have values being in politics but i will say that the attacks that women get tend to uh not exclusively but tend to go more towards the personal tend to go more towards uh you know appearance often or their sexuality or their mothering or you know using some words that were used to um you know put women down the most vulgar way you see all kinds of stuff and Catherine mckenna has endured a lot of it but it has not dampened her enthusiasm for women in politics and so she's not just not warning women from going into politics she's actively encouraging women to go into politics and to run like a girl to be themselves i think that's a fantastic message it is we'll finish on that positive note uh, laura babcock president of power group laura always a pleasure uh, stay well and uh, we'll talk again soon i hope you too bill Bye-bye. take care you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml Let's talk a little bit about what's going to be happening with Canada Day. Uh, Aaron O'Toole, a conservative leader, of course, uh, feels that you know uh, we should just celebrate Canada Day like like just about every other year. Doesn't want to see anything cancelled. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, though, says in the wake of the pandemic and the discovery of unmarked graves at the former residential school, that uh, well, it's a time for reflection for Canadians. Reflecting on the really tough year we just had with COVID nineteen, how much we lost, how much we learned how much we've been there for each other through difficult times. But at the same time, many, many Canadians will be reflecting on reconciliation, on our relationship with Indigenous peoples and how it has evolved and how it needs to continue to evolve rapidly. Well, some communities, uh, St. Catharines being the latest one, have uh, decided to take the Prime Minister's a suggestion to heart, and they're, they're canceling Canada Day festivities. Uh, Aaron O'Toole apparently is, is opposed to that sort of thing. But how do Canadians feel about that as we head towards Canada Day? And uh, the Prime Minister's point's well taken here. It's, it's been a hell of a year because of COVID, and certainly with the revelation about what we found out about uh, residential schools and the treatment of Indigenous people. Is, is it changing our attitude? Are Canadians still proud of their country, still proud to be Canadians? Well, our friends at Leger, of course, uh, as per her usual, have done an incredible job of, of finding out about this and talking to Canadians and Americans, actually, about uh, that and and about uh, our patriotism, I suppose. Dave Schultz is the executive VP of Legend, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Dave, thanks again for joining us. Great to have you back here today. Oh, thank you. Thank you to be. Thank you for having me here. Very timely, obviously, as we head in towards Canada Day and uh, the the debate that seems to be going on about just how much we should be celebrating and things of this nature. Uh, and you asked a series of questions, uh, as you guys do at, at Lager so very well, about just where we are. I guess you know, where our heads are at these days, psychologically, and and what we're feeling about. Uh, what'd you find? Well, yeah, overall, you know, you talk about should we be canceling Canada Day, Canada Day. 
77% of Canadians told us, no, we should not cancel Canada Day. Uh, it's not that 24% went the other way or 23% went the other way, but 14% say yes. And it really falls along political lines. So if you are uh, tend to vote conservative or tend to vote liberal, you believe that Canada Day should be continuing. If you tend to vote NDP, there's a greater likelihood that you believe that uh, Canada Day should be cancelled. That doesn't mean everything is all positive with 77% of Canadians saying we should continue it. There is a general sense that we are a little less proud of our country now than we were five years ago. Is Now, did, did you peel back a couple of layers here? Is it because of what happened with the residential schools? Is, is, that, is that causing the angst or is it just a general feeling of malaise in the country? We, we haven't we didn't go into details on that aspect, but there is that general malaise. But you you referenced something. And Veronics did some work recently where it showed that forty percent of Canadians until recently really didn't know what was going on in residential schools. Mm-hmm. And I think you know if I go, there's um, uh, John Ralston Saul once, and I'm going to horribly screw up this quote, but he once made a comment that when you accept Canada, you're accepting all of Canada our past and our present. And I think a lot of Canadians are just learning about part of our past. Uh, yeah, I can understand that. And, and, you know, knowledge can be a powerful tool, but at the same time it can be very sober, be very sobering experience too when you start seeing some things like this. And I guess that's obviously having an impact. Uh, but when you talk about, you know, how people don't maybe have the same high opinion of Canada that they did maybe five years ago, uh, that's on a regional basis too, isn't it? It, it definitely is. If you start looking about, uh, so the people who are less proud to live in Canada are uh, more likely to come from Alberta, uh, the prairies. Interestingly, one of the one of the places that's most proud compared to five years ago to live in Canada is Quebec. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a province who's always identified as Quebec first, Canada second in a lot of ways. Uh, but uh, but definitely this falls on, on provincial reach, uh, provincial differences as well. As age differences, the older you are, the more likely you are to be uh, feel that you're prouder about Canada and also more likely to believe that we shouldn't be cancelling Canada today. There's an, an interesting twist to this. Yeah, I, I find it fascinating, too. A generation ago, we were worried about Quebec separation, and now separatist movement seems to be growing in Alberta as opposed to in Quebec uh, for a variety of reasons. But that's another poll, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> and, to, and to be fair, when we asked Canadians, would you display a Canadian flag this Canada Day, only 14% of Quebecers said they would. And I, and I don't believe that has anything to do with the current state of conversation in Canada, it's more that they're not going to display a Canadian flag. But having said that, I, I love one of your follow-up questions to that. Uh, we as Canadians love seeing Canadian flags, don't we? We do. We think there should be more of them uh, out there. You know, 69% said it would be good if the Canadian flag was displayed more often and in more places in Canada. That's, that, that's interesting. It's that, encouraging. Talked about the re- we talked about the regional differences of pride. And I, I just said that Alberta and Manitoba were lower of that. Manitoba and Saskatchewan are the highest on wanting to see the Canadian flag more. So pride is down a little bit in those regions, but they really want to see more flag, more Canada. But it's interesting. We, you know, we as a country want to see that as a, as a community, as a greater community. Uh, but not too many people actually want to fly them from their own residence. That's correct. That's, That's correct. Uh, 
rather interesting to see that. What about, I'm always intrigued when you do these surveys on an annual basis, Dave, especially around Canada Day, uh, about new Canadians and their attitude toward the country. You know, we didn't, uh, if I talk to, we didn't really look at new Canadians within this one, unfortunately. Um, I have done some work for the um, Institute for Canadian Citizenship as well that shows that uh, new Canadians are, there's a reason they're here in Canada. Um, They're very proud to be in Canada, but they can also be very critical of Canada and expect Canada to live up to an ideal that uh, the reason why they came here. So some of this news becomes particularly um, more concerning for new Canadians. Uh, and I know that uh, when we look at, at this right now, the patriotism that, that, that we see from there, uh, and, and this is the debate. I'm just wondering how involved people are going to be in this about you know whether we should be canceling festivities on Canada Day. Some, I guess, are going to the extreme and just saying cancel the whole thing. Just let's not recognize Canada Day. Uh, I don't get the sense there from, from the survey and the numbers that you got here that uh, that's uh, popular with very many, 14% of Canadians. Uh, don't are over that line, but most of us, I think, think we have to do something to celebrate our, our day to, on on Thursday. I, I that's the general. It isn't the case of let's just cancel this outright. Um, we didn't see this in the poll, but I see this in other work that's being done out there. It's more a case of let's reflect, and I think uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has it right on in terms of it's time for reflection. But it's also, uh, it's according to the people we surveyed, it's a time to also. Um, so in Canada, moving forward. So, Canada's, uh, you know, this is where we are, um, but how, you know, and how can we get better? And that's one of the things also that we talked about in terms of where does Canada fit in countries of the world. 46% of Canadians feel that we're one of the best countries in the world to live in, uh, which, which is not a great number, but, uh, uh, if you add in the next response where Canada is okay, but it's not much better than many countries in the world, which is a very Canadian sort of response, that number increases to 58%. So we still have a long ways to go to being what we would like to see as the best country overall. I know Anne Veronica did some research about Indigenous uh, attitudes uh, towards Canada as well, and th- those were interesting numbers. I, uh, you just mentioned 58%. The, the number I saw here, 58% of Indigenous Canadians reported some attachment to Canada, uh, which is slightly higher than the 52% of non-Indigenous who said the exact same thing. Uh, and that's that's an interesting reflection, given what's happened over the last couple of weeks. It, it really is, um, and I think that's we need to do more of this looking at uh, how different segments of our population are viewing Canada, and that's going to help us to figure out how we move forward uh, as a combined Canada. Uh, we're, 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 a, we're a whole bunch of different groups, and we talked about it here, uh, different age groups, different regions, uh, uh, different, uh, you know, whether you're Indigenous or not, And uh, but I think understanding all those points of view is important to where we're going to go with Canada. You talked about, you know, we may have a, a lesser opinion of the country than we did five years ago. Uh, for those who said, okay, that's it, and we hear how many times I hear this on this program from, uh, you know, irate <laughs> listeners and say, that's it, I'm leaving, I'm, I'm leaving, I'm going someplace else. You automatically you think, well, they probably want to go to the United States. I mean, they're our neighbor, you know, we have so much in common. Uh, but you, and that was one of the questions you asked. If you had to leave Canada, where would you live? Uh, Folks in Alberta have much different opinions about uh, the states, and I, I guess for a number of reasons, maybe canceling pipelines would have something to do with it. But when they want to move, they want to move a long way, don't they? They want to move to New Zealand. Yeah. Um, and, and we ask that question for the same reason that you hear, because there's a lot of people who say, well, that's it. I'm uh, Canada's going down the, 
down the hill. I'm moving out. I'm going to go somewhere else. So we wanted, so we wanted to, you know, sort of call people on this and see where they would actually go to. Uh, 16% of people overall told us uh, the United States. Uh, that number drops to 12% in Alberta, and uh, they choose they choose New Zealand, but also BC. 18% of BC residents and 28% of people in the Atlantic provinces choose New Zealand. So it is the uh, the place of choice. Fascinating surveys, as always, uh, with Leger. Uh, by the way, while I've got you, I know you've done some work uh, about vaccines, and obviously that's a big topic for everybody these days because of what's going on on both sides of the border. And we should mention and remind our listeners that, that we, a lot of the polling that Leger does uh, includes American and Canadian opinions on things like this. And I guess the topic when it comes to vaccines is, first of all, to get them. But secondly, uh, the announcements that we've made in Canada and that uh, President Biden's made south of the border about actually sending vaccines to the rest mm-hmm. of the world, the third world countries. There's pretty strong opinions on that through your survey. Definitely. So Canadians, 88% of us um, ha- have been vaccinated or intend to get vaccinated. Let's start with that number. But then what do we do after that? And most Canadians want us to send uh, vac- vaccines to other parts of the country, but we'd like to wait until we are full, our vaccination campaign is completed. So 60% of Canadians say that we should wait till our vaccine uh, campaign is finished, compared with 40% in the U.S. So the U.S. seems to be more ready to ship vaccines at any time, whereas Canada's where we think it has to happen, but we want to hold on for a little longer. I'm wondering and trying to extrapolate from that where the attitude's coming from. It may well be the fact that they produce vaccines in a a big way down in the States. We don't. Uh, So maybe we want to make sure that everybody gets ours before we give them away. Uh, We hear an awful lot from anti-vaxxers, especially when the debate rages about, you know, the efficacy of the vaccines, too. You asked about that, about uh, vaccine safety and about who thinks that uh, vaccines should be avoided. I, I, I was surprised at, frankly, how low the number is. You know, the 7% say that uh, they have some concern that, that vaccines are dangerous. And back in November, when we first started asking this question, that number was at 9%. So we've seen a, we've seen a drop in that, even just over this time, in terms of people being uh, uh, less concerned about it. Uh, we see uh, vaccine hesitancy much higher in the U.S., so 7% in Canada. It's 16% in, uh, in the U.S., um, and and in general, across the country, we're seeing uh, generally low results, a little bit higher in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, for concern about uh, vaccine uh, vaccines being dangerous. But in general, we see very positive results across the country here. So there seems to be some positivity about this, and people, I guess, understand just how important this is. And, uh, well, the message we're getting from our elected officials, of course, is to be part of this program. Uh, and, and there's a confidence, I guess, to this, too. And I would think that part of the motivation for that, Dave, is, is more than likely the fact that we want to get back to our lives. And, I, I, you know, we've been told for the last four months especially that, well, vaccines, is, is what, that's what's going to get you there. If, if you want your life back, if you want your kids back in school, if you want to go to a football game or a ball game, okay, uh, get your vaccine. And, and I guess that's resonating with a lot of Canadians and Americans. It, it is. I mean, if, even if you talk to Canadians about different activities. So, um, you know, as soon as restaurants are open, 45% of Canadians are pretty much planning on going out the first day and going to a restaurant. Immediately, the answer is immediately. As soon as I am allowed, I'm going to go to a restaurant. 49% say the same thing for shopping malls. So we're ready to get back to some semblance of where we're at. Uh, and, and we're 
advancing. You know, I talked about the work that we did last year, but if you look at the work we did in April, 80% of Canadians had been vaccinated or had intended to get vaccinated. Yesterday, that number's increased to 88%. And we see it going up every, we do this survey about every two weeks on that aspect. We see it increasing every two weeks that more and more people are moving to that positive category. And that, that's good for the opening up again. Dave Schultz, uh, Executive VP at Leger. Uh, Dave, always a pleasure. Uh, thanks so much for this. Happy Canada Day, a, a day and a yeah, half from now. Happy Canada Day to you as well. And we'll talk again soon. Thanks for this, Dave. All right. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've heard some bone-chilling stories about uh, residential schools and uh, what went on there for many, many years. And uh, it's uh, not just, the, the, of course, the, the grave sites that we've talked about, but the treatment of, of the children that went to those schools, uh, how they got there in the first place, and, and so many other things that were just horrific uh, details about this. Well, we're going to talk about something uh, that has uh, recently been uncovered that uh, I think adds to that angst that, uh, that we felt about this and the, and the horrible feeling we have about just what went on there. Uh, and it's, it's got to do with uh, nutrition researchers. And this is going back a couple of generations, but it's an important story for us to talk about. Uh, they saw malnutrition children, of course, at Indian residential schools, as test subjects, or lab rats, as it were, to do some research about nutrition. And uh, it's, it's a, a story that, that has to be told. Uh, we're so pleased to welcome to the program Allison Daniel. Allison is a PhD researcher with SickKids Center for Global Child Health at the University of Toronto's Temperature Faculty of Medicine. She's also a Global Health Fellow with the Dalai School of Public Health and a consultant for the World Health Organization. Allison, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. I really appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Bill. Let's, uh, Allison. Let's talk about what went on here, and and, and I, I I want to warn our listeners. I get this is rather troubling when you hear some of the details, but uh, details that need to be told. Let's talk about this. Sure. So I I recently wrote an article for the conversation. It was really to other nutrition researchers and settler Canadians in general to bring up this majorly important problem. Uh, in which nutrition researchers actually saw malnourished children at Indian residential schools as quote-unquote perfect test subjects and conducted completely abhorrent experiments on these children. And I want to uh, clarify for people, because they did not look at malnutrition malnutrition children and say, look, at, we do need to do something about them. We're going to try to help these people. Uh, they basically went the other way. They wanted to see how bad things could get if they withheld nutrients from them. Exactly. And one of the main experiments was actually essentially starving children over a couple of years in residential schools to establish a baseline, uh, which is, of course, completely unethical. Uh, they actually had to get permission to do this. So, I mean, obviously, the federal government had to have been a partner in this, at least were aware of what was going to be going on. Yeah. So uh, several of the main researchers actually pitched this uh, experiment to the federal government. The government was aware of the malnutrition that already persisted in residential schools and still approved of these experiments. Then the methodology here is, is uh, well, it's bothersome to, to, to be sure. Uh, they basically used uh, 400 Cree adults and children in northern Manitoba to a range of intrusive assessments, including physical exams, x-rays, and blood draws, without permission. Uh, then they went on to uh, give children at the Alberta Indian Residential School a low amount of milk for two years, enough to substantially deprive growing children of the calories and the nutrients that were needed for growth. 
Yeah, exactly. And I, I do want to emphasize here that starving children at a time of growth and development has serious long-term consequences. As, as we know from pediatricians and anybody who's got kids understands that, that, I mean, growing children need to be fed the proper amount of food. Uh, and th- th- this is what's most troubling about this, really, when you hear the details of this, Allison. Uh, they went the other way. I mean, previous to getting permission from the government to be able to do this to Aboriginal kids, they were basically uh, using animals in, in, in laboratories to try to do this. And they figured, hey, let's try to find some humans and they've the right to residential schools it's it's very troubling that the mindset that was going into this at the time yeah and I, I think even at the time this wouldn't be considered ethical i mean there's there's absolutely no way that experimenting on children and starving them and doing invasive procedures could ever have been okay but they did this anyway uh, under the guise of of trying to create a better system i suppose it's worth annoying by the way that one of the people that was involved in this actually ended up uh, i guess uh, developing the canada food guide uh, i'd hate to think that some of the research that they did here went into the the, the work that, that gave them the determinations about what's good and bad but uh, they certainly know what's bad because they saw the impact that it had on aboriginal kids yeah exactly and i think that was one of the main um, ways that that um, these experiments were actually pitched was that about 60% of Canadians at the time had some form of nutrient deficiency and therefore um, these experiments could contribute to what be- later became Canada's food guide. There's stereotyping that goes on here too. I know the principal of the Alberta Indian Residential School uh, was weighing in on this too, and he says that the malnutrition that they were already experiencing was caused by traditional diets and ways of living, uh, which he called indolent habits. Uh, nutrition experiments also profoundly inadequate and low-quality foods, giving children in residential schools uh, aligned perfectly with this whole idea. They told them what shiftless, uh, inert uh, individuals, which is again typical of the stereotyping that went on back in those days and saying, well, it's because of the diet. Let's see how bad it can get. So they deprived them to see if they were right. Yeah, exactly. And I I would like to stress here as well that this is yet another means of colonization and cultural genocide. Um, and, of course, I, I would argue that uh, this was genocide in addition to cultural genocide. Well, what was the end result of this? I mean, you know, as they're doing this, uh, as as you know from the research you've done in this, Allison, it, it, especially children that are that formative age of growth, uh, if they don't get the nutrients that they're needed, uh, it can have severe long-term health effects, uh, and, and we've heard about that so many different times. Uh, and I'm not trying to connect the dots here, but when we hear these stories about these grave sites on, in many of these residential schools, uh, you have to wonder if experiments like this were a contributing factor. Of course, and we do know that malnutrition is deadly, especially when combined with risk of disease. Uh, And the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's final report did reveal that malnutrition was a cause of death. But it's it's really important to consider the effects on survivors as well. Uh, We do know from other famines and research globally that malnutrition has serious lasting effects including putting people at risk of chronic conditions during adulthood, such as type 2 diabetes. And we have seen this in Indigenous survivors of residential schools. But this is making a bad situation worse, this, this experimentation that went on. And it went on for about 10 years, didn't it? 
Yeah, so there was a series of nutrition experiments uh, between 1942 and 1952, um, and the most prominent one being that two-year experiment of withholding uh, milk and calories and protein and so on from, from children. That's a very extended period of time to do that. So when we talk about the diseases that are rampant in some indigenous communities, uh, you're going to talk about malnutrition, certainly, uh, but the people that ran the schools and the people that were doing the experiments here uh, simply said, well, it's because they're not eating properly, so we're going to make them eat worse and see just how bad it can get. Was was that the mindset? Yeah, I I think so. I mean, it's really hard to actually rationalize or or really understand what was going through these minds. Uh, of the researchers other than um, racism and an opportunity to use Indigenous people as lab rats uh, to serve their own needs and to assimilate Indigenous people and so on. Well, we've talked to some survivors, and I know you've certainly seen the interviews. I'm sure you've talked to people that uh, have gone through that experience as well, Allison. And, and they, they talk about you know, being told that they have no soul, that they, you know, that they were less than human, and and that seems to be the attitude that was prevalent with the, the people that went through with these experiments. First of all, for the government to say, "Yeah, go ahead and do this," then for them to do it over a period of ten years. We, do we have any idea at all about? I know there were a thousand students and kids that were involved in this initially uh, about what the outcomes were. I mean, you know, did, did people that, that went through this experience uh, where there's so obviously some survivors, but I mean, with others, I guess they didn't uh, survive these sorts of situations. But was there any outcry at all saying maybe we shouldn't be doing this? Well, one of the things to note here is that these experiments were done on unwitting children. So many didn't even know that they were being experimented on. Uh, so it's quite difficult to kind of pin down who who was actually experimented on. Um, but w- there are, of course, many stories about um, just the malnutrition that that. Uh, was experienced in residential schools, even apart from uh, the experiments that were done. Yeah, because we understand that when you're doing research of, of any kind, you, you, there has to be a test group, and there's, you know, some people are going to get the proper amount of food. Others are going to be uh, the unfortunate ones that are going to be on the other side of the group. So it's 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 scientific research and its scientific methodology that's involved in this. Uh, but it's the outcomes that that I think we find most troubling here. Yeah, and I I would argue that this was research at its very poorest, if you even want to call it research. Um, the argument to establish a baseline by further starving children is is not how research should ever be done, uh, which goes without saying. It's not just nutrients. I mean, I know you've done an extensive amount of work on this. One of the things I find most troubling about this is uh, those that were in that in the, the control group here that were not getting the proper nutrition uh, were also uh, basically uh, told that they couldn't have dental care. Uh, they did not get dental care uh, for that same period of time. I, it, it boggles the mind to think that this is the kind of attitude and the, the, the methodology that they used here. Yeah, and one of the guises that was used by the researchers was that it would be more difficult to understand the effects of providing nutrients if children were given dental care. Um, I I don't think that's an excuse um, in any way. I, I think there, as a scientist, there are other ways of 
of actually understanding the effects of experiments. So this is just essentially another way of torturing these children. And, and you're right. I, I know you mentioned this a couple of minutes ago. It's, it's impossible to get inside the heads of these people that were involved in this. Uh, but at the same time, it, what they've done and, and the way in which they did this uh, seems to indicate that they just didn't understand that there's a, there's a humanity that's involved in this that was totally lost on them. They just looked at these people as, as lab rats, not as, as human beings. Right. And I, I think that's, that's what um, we've been uncovering over the last especially couple of weeks uh, with the news um, of, of finding Indigenous children buried at these residential schools that in unmarked graves. I mean, that's proof that these were not considered as people, as children, by the perpetrators at residential schools. This ties in with what the residential schools were all about, about assimilation, uh, about taking the, the, the traditions away, their language, their cultures, uh, their, their food, for that matter, and, and saying, look, you're, you're going to be like us. I mean, it, it falls all under that same umbrella, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think that this, as, as I said in the article, this was seen as the perfect way to assimilate children and Indigenous people more broadly outside of residential schools, where experiments also did take place. And it's essential. I want people to understand these are not volunteers. They didn't say, "Hey, this is what we're going to do." Uh, they just did it. They just went in there and did this. Uh, and these were unwitting uh, participants in this. So they weren't given, you know, they didn't told what was going on. They, were, they certainly didn't give permission for what happened uh, to be happening to their kids or to the adults that were involved in this. It's just something that went on, and, and they suffered the consequences of, the, of these experiments. Exactly. And one other thing that I'll point out is that. Um, many of these experiments were done following the Holocaust, in which biomedical experiments were done in concentration camps, which led to the development of the Nuremberg Code uh, in 1947. And this is the exact year that, um, that many of the researchers embarked on nutrition experiments in residential schools after this code strictly said that voluntary consent is essential for research and experiments should avoid all unnecessary suffering, which is not the case. But apparently it was not applicable, and, and I'm saying that sarcastically. Uh, for those that don't know, the Nuremberg Court, of course, was after the trials of Nuremberg, when some of the terrible stories about what happened in concentration camps were finally exposed to the world, and there was experimentation that went on with some of the residents and, and the victims of, of those concentration camps. So they basically said, you can't do anything like that without consent. Uh, you've got to tell some people what you want to do and get their permission to do this. Uh, and that was... Fresh. That was right in the middle of this. It was 1947 that they made that declaration. Uh, but apparently nobody thought to impose that or to apply that to what was going on in the residential schools. Yeah, and one of the hypotheses, I guess, is that um, many of the Canadian researchers who did these experiments felt that the, these rules didn't apply to them. They were more sophisticated and could go ahead with their experiments on Indigenous children. It's, it's just, it's horrifying to actually hear this. It, it ended in 1952. Was that uh, a prescribed end to this? Did they just say, okay, we've got the data that we need, and they just left it and walked away? Yeah, so this is something that's always been a bit unclear, uh, in that several of the experiments 
weren't actually published or perhaps even completed, um, which kind of shows or is indicative of how unethical these experiments actually were and that they did not contribute to science in any way. Yet these people were considered to be, you know, leaders in, in their chosen field. Yeah, I mean, one of the architects here was Frederick Tisdall, who is famous for being a co-creator of the infant food pablum uh, during his time at SickKids at Sick Kids Hospital. But did they use this information to try to, in that research, to develop that sort of stuff? As you mentioned, some of the other people here that were involved in this, uh, uh, Dr. Pett, I think, was one of the other ones, later uh, one mm -hmm. of the authors of the Canada Food Guide. So uh, these, as I say, these people had a reputation, and, and a pretty decent reputation, I guess, in this field, uh, yet they, they looked upon these people as indigenous, as, as they're, they're unwitting victims in this, in this research. Right. So at, at the time of these experiments, uh, nutrition research in general was gaining momentum, uh, the infant food pablum had actually been developed before these experiments had been done, uh, which this is kind of my opinion here, but I, I can't see the justification in looking at vitamins and minerals and using the excuse that we didn't know anything about them at the time, therefore needed to do experiments on humans. Yet years before pablum had been developed uh, with vitamins and minerals added to it with a specific goal of addressing infant malnutrition. So to me, that doesn't add up at all. Well, no, not, a, not only does it not add up, I think it underscores just how insensitive these people were. They absolutely, because of their expertise in the field at that time, they knew exactly what was going to happen to those kids if they denied them the nutrition that they needed as growing children. They, they, it was a matter of how bad it to get. I guess that was the, the, the bottom line here. That's what they were looking for. But they knew they were going to cause damage, yet they did it anyway. Exactly. And, and I think that's a really important point to stress. There, there is nothing good that came out of these experiments. Uh, I want to direct our listeners to uh, to the, the conversation.com, the webpage that uh, the article that you wrote appears. Uh, it's it's something that needs to be read and something that needs to be talked about. And Allison, I want to thank you for the research that, that you have done on this and, and for bringing this to our attention. Uh, thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate you joining us on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Okay. Allison Daniel, PhD researcher uh, with SickKids Center uh, for Global Health. Uh, it's a disturbing story, but it ties in with exactly what we've been told about the, the sort of activity that went on there in residential schools. And it's, uh, as we mentioned at the beginning of the program today, it's certainly one of the dark chapters, if not the darkest chapter in our history in this country. And as we celebrate Canada Day, uh, we also need to acknowledge these events and understand that. And rationalize them if that's possible i don't think it is in this case the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on 900 chml the bill kelly podcast is available on apple podcast google podcast or wherever you get your podcasts from you can also listen to the bill kelly show weekdays from nine till noon on 900 chml i'm bill kelly thanks again for listening and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast it's free so you never miss an episode and make sure that you rate and review